When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. This week's Novel Conversation is about the novel A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. And I'm joined in my conversation today by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi, Scott, welcome. Glad to be here, Frank. Thank you. Before we get started, let me read you a quick summary of A Farewell to Arms. Set at the Italian front during the early years of World War I, A Farewell to Arms was Hemingway's second novel and was published in 1929. Although considered by many to be Hemingway's war novel, A Farewell to Arms is much deeper and fuller than just a war story. Through his main characters of Frederick Henry and Catherine Barclay, Hemingway explores the difficulty and complexity of loving and living in a world at war. Scott, was this your first time reading A Farewell to Arms? It is the first time I completed it. When did you start and not finish it? In the middle of final exams week in college, one semester. Are you glad you got through it this time? Absolutely. Ildi, how about you? Is this your first time reading A Farewell to Arms? Yeah, it's my first time. I was pleasantly surprised. Why pleasantly surprised? Well, after having read some of the other Hemingway, I found this story a little bit more cohesive throughout. I think you mentioned it was more of a linear narrative. It was more of a linear narrative rather than The Sun Also Rises. Which, if I recall, you considered it an episodic story. Exactly. Are you glad you read it? I am glad I read it, although it did leave me with a lot more questions than answers. Well, Scott, Ildi, with those introductions, let's start at the top. All right, Ildi, tell me how this novel begins. Well, this novel begins with a omniscient narrator who describes the setting for us. He starts off by saying, In the late summer of that year, we lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plain to the mountains. Troops went by the house and down the road, and the dust they raised powdered the leaves of the trees. And so he takes this serenely beautiful landscape, and all of a sudden the troops come marching in. And what's more, he takes the beautiful nature scene that he's describing, and the nature quickly becomes a barren, dust-filled, desolate landscape. It's nature at war. Nature with war set upon it. And Ildi, you said our narrator's omniscient. We don't really know who's talking to us. Right. You know he's a soldier, but we don't know much else about him. Well, let's let our readers in on the secret. Who is our narrator? Our narrator is Frederico Henry, or Frederick Henry, an American, or Tenete. They have many different names for him. Well, now, he is an American. He is an American in the Italian army, and he joined up to drive ambulances. But he doesn't actually drive ambulances. He's in charge of an ambulance team. He's a lieutenant, right? Right. He organizes the drivers and makes sure the wounded get to the hospitals. But Scott, he's the only American we meet. He knows Italian, and all the soldiers that work with him are Italian. He was a student in Rome studying architecture, and he realizes the war's coming out. Maybe I ought to fight in it. I know Italian. I can just join here. All right, Scott, who are the first characters we meet? The first characters we meet are the individuals he's working with at the hospital and the ambulance center. Men such as the Dr. Rinaldi, who is his roommate. And a best friend. And a best friend. Also, there is a young Italian priest we meet. He's there to serve the spiritual needs of the wounded. He's also grossly picked upon by the irreligious Italian officers. It seems almost a sport, Ildi. Every night at dinner, they all make fun of the priest. That's right. When they all get together in the mess hall, they sit there and basically abuse the priest. Verbally. Right. They basically tease him about not being with women because they're with women all the time. 
and how he must be lonely and how could he live such a life. They actually call insulting the priest every night priest baiting. And later in the book they complain when all of the good priest baiters have died or have been transferred elsewhere. It's clear that this priest is not respected by these soldiers. I think that in a certain extent our omniscient narrator does respect the priest and in his heart wants to be like him. In fact, he makes a comment that he never does the things that he wants to do. You never do such things. And the priest offers for Henry, our main character, to go to his hometown for a vacation. Instead of doing that, he goes all over the country. And when he comes back, he realizes, I didn't go to the priest's hometown. They made preparations for me. You know, why didn't I go? I wanted to go, but I didn't. Scott, do you think that the ambivalence that Henry shows towards the priest is meant to give us an insight into Henry's ambivalence towards religion in general? More of a foreboding sense of his own guilt or his desire to develop religion, to cultivate it in some way. But every time the chance presents itself, he opts not to go that direction. Okay. Ildi, you mentioned that Henry takes a trip. How does he get to leave the front. The fighting has ceased when the snows come. When the winter rolls in, everything gets shut down. Hemingway is clear to tell us that a lot of the battles and a lot of the war is taking place in the mountains. And of course, in the wintertime, these mountains become impassable. So they almost close the war down for the wintertime. It almost seems that the war is so far removed from the soldiers. And when they go on leave and they come back, it's almost like they just took a vacation. They're coming back to work. It doesn't feel yet like a true war. It will, but it's not in the beginning. And that's how Hemingway introduces us to it, the very first line of chapter two. The next year, there were many victories. We've already skipped over the whole winter time, and we're back to the springtime when the war is going to resume. But Ildi, as you mentioned, Henry took the opportunity of this winter to travel about Italy a little bit. And it's when he comes back that we really start getting into the meat of our story. Rinaldi, the surgeon, introduces Henry to the other main character from our novel. Miss Barkley. Tell me a little bit about Miss Barkley. Miss Catherine Barkley is a VAD, which is, I believe, a step below a nurse. I'll just call her a nurse for lack of a better word. She is British. She's very lovely and nice to all the soldiers. Rinaldi quickly announces that he's going to marry Miss Barkley very soon. And Rinaldi brings Henry along to help with the conversation since Henry can translate the attack into the English. Exactly. And two seconds later, he steals her away. Was it even two seconds? Maybe not. They didn't even get there before he started. Oh, she is really pretty. And Rinaldi just started talking to her friend, another nurse, a Miss Ferguson. Scott, as soon as we're introduced to Miss Barkley, it's completely from Henry's perspective. Rinaldi basically disappears, as Ildi said. Rinaldi even says so when they get back the evening. She likes you more than she likes me. Oh, well. <laughs> I mean, Rinaldi's not broken up over this. No, there's other girls. Yeah. And still brothel. We quickly find out about Miss Catherine Barkley, the nurse, that she's had a rather troubling experience in the war so far. On the French front, the young man she loved as a young lady was killed at the Battle of the Somme, one of the most horrific battles of World War One. She was engaged to him for eight years. Right. But never married. Right, not an unknown story during wartime, but Hemingway makes it very personal for us. Yeah, and she's very shaken up by this still and has not put the pieces of her life back together emotionally. 
She mentions that she was going to cut all her hair off when he died as a symbol of grieving. She considers herself to be acting a little bit crazy at this period in her life. She calls herself crazy, but I'm not quite so sure that she's certifiable. Close to it. She is British, so we can call her daft at the least. <laughs> do they establish a quick relationship, Henry and Barclay? They do. I think at first Catherine's a little hesitant because she feels that to Henry it is merely a game. And Scott, it is a game to Henry at this time. It absolutely is, and she knows it as well. The first time he tries to kiss her, she slaps him. Slaps him hard. And he's angry. Yes. But yet he knows the whole time that she's playing into the game. Right, he sees the slap as phase one. Henry, Frederick Henry, the omniscient narrator, as we've been calling him, says the following. I thought she was probably a little crazy. I did not care what I was getting into. This was a game like bridge. And on the next page, Catherine says to him, this is a rotten game we play, isn't it? What game? Don't be dull. I'm not, at least not on purpose. You're a nice boy, she said, and you play it as well as you know how, but it's a rotten game. But they keep playing the game, and actually Henry's somewhat successful at it. Oh, yes. He does get a kiss, and he tells her that he loves her, even though he's lying. She knows he's lying. She calls him out on it later on, and he admits it, and she basically says, you know what? I don't care. I know you're lying. Let's not play this game. Let's just continue where we're going, because we get along very well together. How does it go along? Right away in their relationship, there are some foreboding signs of what is to come. Such as? After Catherine slaps him for trying to kiss her, she then lets him kiss her. She shudders. He's rather perplexed by it, but he's comforting her while she's crying on his shoulder. And she says, we're going to have a strange life. This is a point where Henry then goes to the front for a few days. Correct. But he doesn't tell Catherine. No, he's sent right away and he just goes. And when he comes back, they have a nice reunion? No, she's rather furious with him because she didn't know where he was, where he's been, if he was okay. She was probably reliving her experience of where she lost her previous fiancé eight years ago. And then Ildi, just shortly after this trip, he makes another trip to the front, which is going to have a dramatic impact on their relationship. This time he tells her he's going to the front and she gives him a mini St. Anthony statue. It is to go on a necklace around his neck, and he asks her, are you Catholic? And she says, no, but I've heard that the St. Anthony can be useful. So it's basically just a superstition for her. She's not religious in any way, shape, or form. Sort of like the superstitious religion that was exhibited by some of the soldiers when they were teasing the priest. Not really believing, but willing to put up appearances? I don't know if they even put on a pretext of any belief when they were teasing the priest. I think sometimes Henry put on a pretext because he even tells the priest, the only time I have religion is at night when I fear God. And I think that's a theme throughout where people find their religion at night or when they're about to die. Okay, what happens to Henry on this second trip to the front. Henry goes to the front with four other drivers, and there is an offensive that has begun at the front, and the ambulance drivers are hungry, and they're in a shallow dugout, and Henry is sent to go find out where the food is. Italians must be fed. <laughs> exactly. A well-fed soldier is a more effective soldier. So he goes to find out where the food is. Well, he goes in, and he's asking, and they basically are bringing in wounded, and he's like, where's my food? So finally they get the food, and the major says, I don't think you should go out there, but the men are hungry. So he takes the coagulated spaghetti with some cheese, they wipe off the dust, and begin to eat. And that's when a mortar shell falls. One of the ambulance drivers at this point has a farewell to legs, and then to his life as well. He dies very quickly in front of Henry. Henry himself is severely wounded, doesn't realize it at first, 
but then essentially is dragged away by other soldiers nearby. And Scott, this is another scene where Hemingway juxtaposes serenity and some humor. As Ildi said, they're all sitting around having a dinner, having a little bit of fun. Next thing you know, two men are dead, three men are injured. We've got a new story. It happened just that fast. Faster than I could talk it. Faster than I could read it. So now what happens to Henry? Tell me again about his injuries. One leg is extremely wounded. At first you think he's going to lose at least one leg right away. He also has a fracture in his skull. He had bits of bed springs and nuts and bolts that the Austrians had put in the mortar that were embedded into his legs. He is quickly treated on the spot and then transported by the British. The British take over his remaining ambulances because he and all of his men are either dead or wounded. Eventually, he is transported back to the hospital where he's treated by Miss Barkley and the rest of the staff, which he already knows quite well. On the way back in the ambulance, there is a man above him who starts to drip blood onto him. And he basically tells the driver, this guy above me has a hemorrhage. He's bleeding out. He's bleeding out. By the end of the trip, he has died. But Scott, Henry doesn't stay at the local hospital very long. He actually has to be moved to a bigger hospital for some operations. Correct. They cannot do the sort of operations his leg needs to recover at this field hospital. So he is sent to Milan at a much larger hospital. American hospital. Correct. And he quickly makes some nurse friends and some nurse enemies. For a while there, he's actually the only patient in this hospital. So all the nurses are taking care of him in various ways. Nothing was prepared yet because they had just set up this American hospital and there weren't many American wounded yet. He quickly sets up a routine at this hospital. Tell me a little bit about his afternoons. He arranges for a porter to purchase vermouth brandy, cognac, and other various bottles. Just about anything you can buy and drink. So each afternoon he's drinking and hiding it from the head nurse, Miss Van Campen. And shortly into his stay at the large hospital Milan, a new nurse arrives. And Ildi, who is that new nurse? I know who it is. The infamous Catherine Barkley. With her friend? Miss Ferguson. Miss Ferguson. They've come to work in this hospital. Does Catherine know that Henry's in the hospital at this time? Yes. In fact, I think she finagled things so that she and Ferguson could get there. And the finagling doesn't end here with Catherine. No, the finagling definitely does not. When Catherine Barkley walks into Henry's hospital bedroom, Henry falls in love with her. It's no longer a game. It's no longer a game. He honestly, truly falls head over heels for her. Henry states in the book, when I saw her, I was in love with her. From then on, he's very much devoted to her. He still pressures her, not always fair to her necessarily, but is very much in love with her from then on. Are we made aware that the intensification of his love for Catherine is a result of his being wounded and perhaps feeling a bit of his own mortality? Or are we just told he now falls madly in love? just told him he falls madly in love and that's it. I think with Catherine, she had a romanticized idea of what was going to happen with her previous fiance. She imagined that he would get injured, but injured slightly, and that she would be the nurse by his side helping him to convalesce and she would marry her war hero. Live happily ever after. Exactly. And now is she going to transfer these feelings and emotions to Henry? It seems that way. Almost as though the dream is coming true this time. Okay, Ildi, how does the relationship progress between Catherine and Frederick? The relationship between Catherine and Henry is quickly consummated by a little pressure from Henry. And she, at this point, I think is now definitely in love. Scott? I wouldn't necessarily say head over heels in love with him, but certainly devoted to him 
and has attached herself to him. And she works it out where she is now the night nurse on his ward. There's not much supervision during the night shift. And certainly Catherine's friend, Nurse Ferguson, is aware of what's going on. Right, and she aids them in little ways that she can. Right. Nurse Gage as well has an acute sense of what's going on and doesn't mind. Nurse Gage is a very friendly nurse, isn't she? Yeah, she even tells him, I am your friend. Granted, I'm no Miss Barkley as far as you're concerned, but I am your friend. And offers to be his drinking buddy? Yes. Doesn't want him drinking out of the bottle. He should have a glass, a clean glass. And drinking alone? Never. The older nurses are the ones who seem to have the problem with any kind of relationship between a nurse and a patient. So Miss Van Campen, the nurse superintendent, would not approve of them having a relationship. But actually, Scott, Frederick Henry's not only here to consummate and have a relationship with Catherine Barkley, he's actually here to recuperate and have some work done on his legs. Correct. He needs a surgery on his leg to remove all the shrapnel. Somewhat to my surprise, I thought his war days were done already, but he actually wants a surgery quickly so he can go back to the front and continue doing his part in the war. But the doctors in Milan aren't really in a very big hurry. No, the first doctor is not quite certain what should be done, so he brings two other colleagues in to help him diagnose what the proper procedure should be. Hemingway writes, I have noticed that doctors who fail in the practice of medicine have a tendency to seek one another's aid and consultation. A doctor who cannot take out your appendix properly will recommend to you a doctor who will be unable to remove your tonsils. These were three such doctors. And they all agreed. You need to wait six months and then the shrapnel will develop cysts around it and we can remove it safely. And they all agreed. But Henry's not going to wait six months. He can't even imagine that. He's adamant. I do not have six months to wait. I want this done tomorrow. And what's the result? He brings in a fourth doctor who's happy to do all of his diagnosing on his own. That's right. So he says, I don't want any doctors working on me that are only captains. If they were any good, they'd be a major. If this was MASH, Hawkeye would say, find me a major doctor. <laughs> exactly. There's a funny exchange between Henry and the three doctors. He tries to offer them some wine, and they say, oh, no, we never drink. And then the next day when he brings in the lone doctor, who I guess is a major, of course, not only one, but we'll have ten. And how soon can I operate? Tomorrow, but not before. This is a brave doctor. And a very talented doctor. He rings a little bit of Rinaldi. And then the next morning he operates. The surgery is a success, but it's not an uneventful convalescence, is it? No, Catherine Barkley definitely helps him on his road to recovery, and they have many a conversation about their future. Do they want a future? They do want a future. They want a happy, bright, uneventful, unwar-filled future, and they toss around the idea about getting married. Catherine Barkley is against it for two reasons, really. They wouldn't want her caring for her own husband, you know, a little nepotism, and for the fear that she would get pregnant. And how about that fear of getting pregnant? Funny they should fear such a thing. It is materialized. Of course she's going to get pregnant. <laughs> she tells him she's afraid of his reaction, and by that time she's already three months pregnant. How does Henry take the news? Let's get married. Catherine asks if he feels trapped, and he says, maybe a little, but not by you. She didn't like that answer. And he tries to cover it up by saying, you always feel trapped biologically. And then it is at this time that he receives the letter from the Army that he has three weeks convalescent leave, and then he needs to report back to the front. How did they decide to spend his leave? They are going to go traveling, but alas, that doesn't happen either. Scott, what happens? His skin turns yellow, and that is a sign of the jaundice. It is a rather painful experience. And our nurse superintendent, Miss Van Campen, she knows how he got jaundice. She discovers several empty bottles. She discovers, I think, nine bottles of cognac. That was nothing. And one shaped like a bear. That's the kuma. 
the bear liquid, she called it, I think. She accuses him of not wanting to go back to the front, of drinking himself to the point that he had self-inflicted jaundice. Henry takes rather severe umbrage with this sort of accusation, and so she arranges things that he loses his three weeks convalescent leave and is in bed in the hospital for this time. As Henry gets ready to leave, Catherine is getting a little bit anxious and nervous, and Henry tries to reassure her by saying they won't get us because you're too brave and nothing ever happens to the brave. And Catherine replies, they die, of course. But he does leave and go back to the front. He does what he must. But they do have one last evening together before he heads to the front. As they're walking out in the rain. It rains a lot in this novel. It does. Catherine is afraid of the rain, and she very well should be. It always seems to bring with it some malfeasance. Now you've got me wondering. They're walking in the rain to a hotel in Milan. A seedy hotel. It has red plush everywhere. There's mirrors all over the place, and the carpeting on the floor is very worn. Bildi, through the book up to this point, there's been several references made either by Catherine or Henry that they feel married. But this last night in this seedy hotel in Milan doesn't really make Catherine feel like she's married. No. When she sits down on the bed in this hotel, she makes a statement that I have never felt like a whore before. Of course, the man that she thinks of as her husband says, you're not a whore. And she, of course, replies, I know it, darling, but it's not nice to feel like one. Rather sour note, say goodbye with. So a bittersweet parting to send Frederick back to the front. A bittersweet rainy parting. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So Scott, after a long, torturous overnight train ride from Milan back to the front, he reunites with Rinaldi and the priest. Correct. He arrives back to the field hospital where he was stationed before, and he makes the comment, and no longer felt at home here at the field hospital. Things are a little different. The front is closer. The battles are raging. Correct. Things seem a bit more dangerous at this point. And he catches up with Rinaldi, who's very much overworked, seemingly far more stressed than he used to be. Not quite the same happy-go-lucky, young, brilliant surgeon. Even though Rinaldi's been overworked, they are happy to be reunited. Correct. Sometimes I think that Rinaldi is Henry's alter ego. He is the underlying Henry that does the boozing and the drinking and the womanizing. And Henry has another layer to him. Well, we are reunited with his other layer as well, aren't we? The priest. Sure. And they go to the mess hall, Rinaldi, the priest, and Henry. And Rinaldi tries to recreate some of the old priest-baiting magic. And it's relatively unsuccessful. The priest is solid the whole time. He seems to be unaffected by Rinaldi's constant taunting. It's not about having fun pasta picnics out with your ambulance anymore. That's right. These reunion scenes don't last long, though. Henry does have to get to the front. He's ordered to the front, take a few ambulances, and pick up some wounded. This is really where the story turns. Yeah, this is, in fact, when Italy is truly being beaten, and no longer by the Austrians, but by the Germans. And what happens when Henry gets to this front? He's quickly ordered to prepare for a retreat. And how orderly was that retreat? Henry 
we get the ambulances ready, well, what do we put in them? Medical supplies, of course. We're leaving the wounded in the dirt. And quickly, Henry and his three ambulances are separated from the main body of the Army. They're stuck in traffic for quite a long time. There's horse carts holding up the line of the gas ambulances and other Army vehicles. But they realize, you know what, we're sitting ducks. As soon as this fog lifts, the Germans are going to come by with an airplane and we're all going to be decimated. Well, they decide to take the ambulances cross-country. And it's on this cross-country trip that a couple of very shocking and violent episodes occur. Some that really change your opinion, or at least change my opinion, of Frederick Henry. At first, you have one of the ambulances getting stuck. And instead of just abandoning the ambulance and going, Henry is adamant about staying and trying to get this ambulance unstuck. And you know what? They end up leaving it anyways. And a little further on, they end up leaving all of the ambulances. All this delay doesn't really sit well with some of the soldiers that are in this group. Two of the sergeants that they somewhat brought along to help push if they should get stuck realize they're wasting very precious time and they're not going to wait around any longer. They take off running. And here's the first shocking episode. Henry takes out his pistol and shoots them as they're running away. Scott, did this ring true for you? Yes. I mean, to be very technical, they were deserting. They disobeyed very direct orders, and the punishment for that is to be shot. Okay, that's being technical, but were you prepared for Frederick Henry to pull out a gun and shoot a deserter like that? Absolutely not. And the terrible thing about it is that you already realize the sergeants were correct. But the other men with Frederick Henry are not shocked that he shot a deserter. No, in fact, a little while later, when they're at a farmhouse, another one deserts. So Scott, do Frederick Henry and his men finally make it back to the Italian line? About half of them. One of the ambulance drivers is shot by friendly fire, and while making their way to a barn, one of the remaining ambulance drivers bans them and heads to the Germans in order to surrender. He feels he'd be better taken care of as a POW than what's going to be left of Italy. Correct. Which is not far from the truth. That's right. Okay, so Henry and one other driver finally do make it to the Italian line. They make it back as far as a bridge. And at the end of this bridge, there are carabinieri, the police. They are checking, and it seems that they are pulling out the officers. Officers that should be leading their men rather than retreating on their own. And they're being questioned. And he realizes so far, no one has passed the questioning. Everyone has been shot. So does he stick around for the questioning? He makes a run for the river and takes a dive in. And he tries to stay underwater as long as possible because he hears shots fired at him. He does well. He makes an escape. Where does he escape to? He's going to make his way back to Milan and thus to Catherine. He's on foot for much of this time. He makes it to a train. And it's on this train that he has realization. Henry says, you're out of it now. You had no more obligation. So essentially he feels, I didn't leave the army. The army left me. Correct. And now I have to make my way back to Catherine and her child. Does he make it back to Catherine? Not in Milan. She left two days earlier. Hmm. She went with Ferguson, her nurse friend, to Stressa to finish out her pregnancy. But they finally do meet up in Stressa. Right. And fortunately, Stressa is a beautiful vacation spot. It is a lake which borders Switzerland. Switzerland. How convenient. Essentially, they buy a boat and row themselves to Switzerland and asylum. In the middle of the night in a storm. Are they accepted in Switzerland? They are. The Swiss police like stories that are clean cut. They didn't really believe a word of their story, but they had the passports, they had the money, and they had a coherent story, so they were given temporary visas and sent on their way. It's raining again. And the rain is going to turn to snow, which is harder. Eventually the time comes where Catherine is ready to give birth. They've been living in Switzerland now, let's say four months or so, set up a little home, living as man and wife, but not man and wife. Correct. 
and now it's time for Catherine to have her child. They make their way to the hospital. The delivery does not go well. Many, many hours in labor. Things are just not progressing as they should. They keep giving her more and more anesthetic gas. She's starting to show signs of weakness, and so the doctor recommends a cesarean. And Henry says, absolutely, let's do it. Save her. Exactly. Do they save her? The cesarean seems to be successful. The doctor says the baby boy is magnificent. Then there's a worried look on the doctor's face as Henry is heading back to check on Catherine. The doctors say it's a beautiful, magnificent, five-kilo boy, and yet as Henry sees the baby, he describes it as a freshly skinned rabbit and how he has no fatherly feeling towards this baby. He was almost angry as he thought this baby almost killed his mother. And as Henry heads back to Catherine, he realizes things are not going completely well for Catherine at this point either. He sees her on the hospital bed, and she looks as if she's already dead. And this frightens him a little bit. And she perks up and she starts to talk to him. She asks him how the baby is. And he says that he looks like a skinned rabbit with puckered up old man's face. And yet the nurse has a shocked look on her face when he says this to her. Nurse then asks Henry to step out of the room with him. And she says, no, I'm sorry. The baby actually has already died. It actually happens just that quickly in the novel. The nurse realizes neither Catherine nor Frederick know the baby's dead. She takes him outside, tells him, your son has died, the cord was wrapped around his neck, and now all of Henry's attentions turn back to Catherine. But things are not going well with her either. It's still raining out, isn't it? And the doctor tells Henry that Catherine has a hemorrhage. And we know what happens when people have a hemorrhage in this novel. What happens? Just like the soldier at the very beginning, she is quickly dead as well. She bleeds out. And shortly thereafter, Henry kisses her goodbye and is now alone. And these are Henry's thoughts. But after I had got them out and shut the door and turned off the light, it wasn't any good. It was like saying goodbye to a statue. And after a while, I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. It's fitting that he would end the novel with the word rain. Fitting or planned? Planned and sad. It was sad. This was not how you would expect a Hemingway novel to end. Sky, you're shaking your head. Is this how you expected the novel to end? This is one of the novels that has a sad overtone. You don't necessarily expect fuzzy, happy things at the end. I was still holding out for a happy ending, or at least Catherine or the baby to make it. No happy endings for Ernest Hemingway. No Hollywood endings either. No. All right, well, I think that sums up our novel, A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. Now what I really would like from you is maybe some other moments or quotes from the book that we really didn't have a chance to talk about. I know, Scott, you feel there's some very humorous scenes in this novel. And Ildi, I know you have a couple of favorite passages as well. Scott? Yes, I'd like to share two lines from Count Greffy. We didn't really mention Count Greffy. Who's Count Greffy? Count Greffy is a 94-year-old member of the Italian nobility. He is a retired diplomat for both Austria and Italy. He was a contemporary of Metternich. Right, and Henry has a chance meeting with him for a few moments. They play a little billiards and drink a little wine. Correct, and they enjoy each other's company. They'd met once before. And on a humorous side, Count Greffy says, It is the body that gets old. Sometimes I'm afraid I will break off a finger as one breaks a stick of chalk. You liked Count Greffy. It's part of the humorous side of this, yes. <laughs> the conversation takes a more serious note on the next page, and Henry asks Count Greffy, What do you think of the war, really? And Greffy responds, I think it is stupid. Who will win it then? Italy. Why? They are a younger nation. Do younger nations always win wars? They are apt to, for a time. Then what happens? They become older nations. You said you were not wise. Dear boy, that is not wisdom. That is cynicism. Those are some very good lines. Ildi, do you have a moment or a section you want to read? There's a section towards the end that really sums up the novel for me. 
Henry is talking about an episode that he had at camp while he was a child. And Hemingway writes, Once in camp, I put a log on top of the fire and it was full of ants. The ants swarmed out and went first towards the center where the fire was, then turned back and ran toward the end. When there were enough on the end, they fell off into the fire. I remember thinking at the time that it was the end of the world and a splendid chance to be a messiah and lift the log off the fire and throw it out where the ants could get off into the ground. But I did not do anything but throw a tin cup of water on the log. I think the cup of water on the burning log only steamed the ants. And to me, that is the whole novel right there. No matter what you do, you go in towards the fire, you go out towards the fire, it doesn't matter. You're going to end up dead. See, now, I took a little bit of a different view away from that quote. To me, it was a question of where is the Messiah? Is there a Messiah that could have saved the ants? Is there a Messiah that could have stopped this war? Was God just playing with the soldiers like Henry was playing with the ants? And that is why I prefaced this whole conversation with I... I'm left with more questions than I am answers because to this day I still don't know what Hemingway thought about the Messiah and whether he thinks it's all arranged by the Savior or whether it's all punishment. I'm not sure about Hemingway's feelings about God in general. I think he's a cynic. I think he's a agnostic socialist. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe Ted Schwartz knows. Maybe. Let's ask him. That is a good question for Ted Schwartz, but before we end this segment, I've got a favorite quote that I'd like to get in here. These are a couple of the soldiers talking to Henry about how they think they can end the war. One soldier says, we should just stop fighting. I believe we should get this war over. But Henry says, it would not be finished if one side stopped fighting. It would only be worse if we stopped fighting. It would not be worse. There's nothing worse than war. Defeat is worse. I don't believe it. What is defeat? You go home. Defeat is they come after you. They take your home. They take your sisters. I don't believe it. They can't do that to everybody. Let everyone defend his home. Let them keep their sisters in the house. Unfortunately, it seems that there's always a war that this book can apply to. And that's what makes this one of the world's greatest stories. Its themes are timeless. I want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich, for coming in and having this conversation with me about the novel A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. It's been grand. Thank you. You're listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation about the novel A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, welcome. Thank you. Ted, before the readers and I ended our conversation about A Farewell to Arms, we got into a bit of a discussion about Hemingway's religious beliefs. What do we know about Hemingway's religious beliefs? Did he believe in a god? I suspect he did. He died before he could do his memoirs and get into it. The problem he had in terms of organized religion was that he was from conflicted religious theologies as a kid. What do you mean conflicted theologies? Well, his grandfather and his mother were both from an Anglican tradition where God was your best friend and always joyous. His father was from a Puritan tradition where God had a list of rules, and if you broke any of them, you'd go to hell. And he loved them all, so as an adult, he didn't choose one specific religion. So are we just imagining religious symbolism in his novels? I think he would tell you that. He did not believe he put anything symbolic in them. Possibly the greatness of it is how much all of us can read into it. All right, Ted, so if I get a maybe on the religious symbolism, let me ask you this. To me, this is Hemingway's most autobiographical novel. Can you give me that much? Almost. <laughs> almost? Well, how much is almost? What we're going to find as we read Hemingway's work moving forward in his life, he increasingly tried to work out the life he wanted to lead and the life of the characters in his stories. A Farewell to Arms is extremely accurate in dealing with that period of wartime and recovery for the soldiers who were wounded, but the great love affair actually never happened. He had an unrequited love with a nurse. Well, what do we know about Hemingway's life at this time? 
What we know is 18-year-old reporter for Kansas City Star, Ernest Hemingway, discovers that he can't go to war ever because he has a bad eye. He also discovers that the Red Cross is about to advertise in his paper to get 200 volunteers to go overseas to work as ambulance drivers. Well, so far that sounds like our story. Yes. This excites Hemingway. He goes overseas. He becomes an ambulance driver and is bored to tears. So he joins a canteen. And the advantage of the canteen is, even though you're just bringing food and postcards, tobacco to the soldiers, he's where they are when the fighting is going to take place. So he's in the midst of war without being a combatant. Well, so far for Hemingway, he's in a pretty good place. He's got the trappings of being a soldier without any of the danger. That's what he thought. But on June 8, 1918, the 19-year-old Ernest Hemingway learned reality. Well, what happened? Hemingway's wounded by what is essentially an Austrian makeshift explosive device that is designed to tear down fencing to cause maiming, and Hemingway is maimed. He ended up in the hospital badly wounded. Well, Ted, I've got to tell you, Hemingway's life sounds very similar to Frederick Henry's life. Yes, but the difference between Hemingway and his novel, eventually the story got out that Hemingway, though badly wounded, carried another wounded man to safety, during which he was machine-gunned, the bullets hitting his knee and his foot. Well, Ted, how do we think this embellishment eventually got out? Well, the suspicion is Hemingway. (laughs) But he did volunteer, and he did serve. Yes, and what is certain is that because he was helping the troops and because he was wounded in Italy, the Italians did give him a silver cross. He did earn it just by his actions there. But he tended to embellish as the years went by. But he was badly hurt, did go to the hospital, and there the 19-year-old kid fell in love with an older woman. An older woman? Agnes von Karowski of Washington, D.C. Milan was where he was taken, and that was her first posting as a nurse. She was about 28 years old at the time, liked him, as they all did, but he fell passionately in lust with her. But unlike the way Catherine felt about Frederick Henry, Agnes did not fall in love with Ernest Hemingway. Yes, this was the first example of him trying to work his own life into what it should have been had everything gone right. So, Ted, in the end, Frederick Henry got the girl, but Ernest Hemingway got the stories. Yes, and he presented them in his own inimitable way. When he began giving speeches after he got back stateside, he had an Italian cape sewn and put together a really classy uniform that had no connection with anything worn overseas. But his audiences didn't know that, and they enjoyed him. Ted, that's a great story. And I think we're going to end our conversation today with Ernest Hemingway in his cape on stage telling his war stories. Ted, I want to thank you for coming in and bringing endnotes to today's conversation about the novel A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. You're welcome. It's always fun. I also want to thank my Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Today I had a conversation about the novel A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. And until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. 
So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.